Welcome to the Lighthouse Writers Workshop podcast, because sometimes what a writer needs most is other writers, even virtually. The Scribulators Guild is a celebration of narrative nonfiction hosted by Lighthouse faculty member Joel Warner. The program includes an in-depth interview with a guest author about their craft, as well as lots of writerly mingling. Special guest for this salon is Helen Thorpe, the celebrated Denver journalist whose award-winning writing has been published in the New York Times Magazine, The New Yorker, Texas Monthly, and 5280. Helen's first book, Just Like Us, The True Story of Four Mexican Girls Coming of Age in America, won the 2009 Colorado Book Award. And her second book, Soldier Girls, The Battles of Three Women at Home and at War, was named 2014 Nonfiction Book of the Year by Time Magazine. Helen shares how she crafts her intimate, detailed works of literary journalism. Welcome to Lighthouse Writers Workshop, everyone. This is the second Scribulators Guild that we've held here uh, since uh, our host, Joel Warner, has uh, brought it back into existence. Uh, Tonight we have a very special guest, Helen Thorpe. Well, so without further ado, Joel Warner and Helen Thorpe. This is a great crowd for a night with snow. Thank you for coming out. I assume the free alcohol has just a bit to do with it. <laughs> yeah, so thanks for coming out to the Scribulators Guild. Um, all, for those who haven't been before, let me explain uh, a bit about the origin story. Um, I've long been a, a journalist here in Denver, a nonfiction writer, and years ago my wife said, you know, I am so sick of every time we go out all you and your friends talk about is writing. She was just like, she was just so, so done with it. So I said, fine, how about I start a group uh, where me and a bunch of writers would kind of get together and talk about the craft of writing. I think in some ways, especially these days, um, it's easy to forget about uh, the craft of journalism. I think so much talk about what the future journalism holds. We sometimes forget to actually talk about what it means to actually write <laughs> Nonfiction, especially narrative nonfiction. Um, so I started basically this pretty small informal group, uh, various bars in town, and now it's kind of morphed into this, which is definitely far more professional than it's ever been before. Um, and I really like uh, having uh, bringing a, sp- a special uh, guest for me to talk to, especially because I'm because I'm less interested in. Um, what the writers have produced. No offense, Helen. But I'm really excited about learning about how writers do what they do. Because there is no guidebook in journalism. There is no one set of rules in terms of how to write narrative nonfiction. And so I'm, I'm always so curious to hear about how different writers have figured out, to kind of, like how different writers have kind of worked their way to this strange and weird and super exciting business. So... Um, Super excited to have Helen Thorpe here, who I've wanted to uh, do this with for quite a long time. Um, Helen, for those of you who don't know, has been an award-winning writer for a huge variety of publications, from New York Times Magazine to New Yorker to The Atlantic to 5280 and Westward here in town. Uh, Your first book, um, 
just like us, the, the true story of four Mexican girls uh, coming of age in America won the, won the 2009 Colorado Book Award. And your second book, uh, Soldier Girls, uh, was a Time Magazine's best nonfiction book of the year last year. So, yeah. And you can buy both of these books right there in tent. Um, so hopefully Helen has a lot to uh, talk to us about tonight. So thank Delighted you, to be here, absolutely. Thanks for, again for coming out on a snowy night. Yeah. Um, so I want to start at the beginning, if that's okay. Mm-hmm. So uh, you got your start in various roles at places like... Uh, the Atlantic, Boston Phoenix, um, New York Observer. No, 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 no. When I got my start, okay. I was just waitressing and writing poetry. <laughs> okay. But then you started transitioning to kind of various roles at these, at, at these publications. Um, I, I worked as an unpaid intern at the Atlantic, and my job was to read the slush pile, the unsolicited fiction. And I worked in, it was kind of like a closet, really. Yeah. <laughs> where they kept the unsolicited fiction that would get mailed in. So if you'd been trying to submit short stories to the Atlantic in the mid-1980s, I might have been the person who sent a rejection letter or a really nice note. And then you were writing kind of short stuff for places like the Boston Phoenix. Yeah, I started um, trying to write for the Boston Phoenix, which is the westward of Boston. and um, Was the westward of Boston. Yeah, and I got like paragraph-long stories in every once in a while. I was um, working there as an unpaid intern also, making money as a waitress still. And um, I was um, really mostly opening mail and answering phones and um, like running errands for paid writers. And then sometimes I would write for them a little bit. So then here's my question then. How did you get from that point to – to kind of work your way up and to actually be writing the bigger and bigger stories? How do you set yourself apart? Um, well, it was a process, and I, the, the one ingredient, really, I think that goes into successful writing careers is perseverance. So um, I um, uh, did the unpaid intern gigs for a couple years. I went back to graduate school because I couldn't figure out how to become a paid writer. And then I... Um, did not love graduate school and I didn't want to become an academic and I had sort of a crisis and I um, decided I was going to try journalism one more time and I sent um, letters up and down the East Coast to pretty much just about every publication that existed on the East Coast. I mean, I sent out dozens and dozens and dozens of these letters to daily newspapers, weekly newspapers, magazines. I got rejection letter after letter a few nice rejection phone calls and then one day this editor at the new york observer said we just got your letter we've got a job opening send me your clips um he said i i you know i have the three clips that you sent but i'd like to see the rest of your writing and i was like those are my three clips (laughs) i haven't published anything else and he sort of chuckled and said, oh, well, we have another job that maybe you could have then. <laughs> so the writing job, I didn't have enough clips for, but I got um, an assistant job in that newsroom. And then I just kept trying to write. And he was a, a you know, wonderful editor who would keep giving me assignments, even though my official job was answering the phone, opening the mail, and running errands for the writers. Um, but I was paid. Um, just keep. Yep. And then uh, eventually somebody left, and I asked for their job. 
Oh, that's the other thing. I guess you have to keep asking for things to have them happen. It was never the case that somebody just sort of came along and said, you could, you could do this. Um, so then I started writing for the New York Observer, and since then I've been, been writing pretty much full-time at one place or another or freelance. From what I gather, your time at the Texas, uh, Texas Monthly was, uh, was a formative experience. Yeah, when I um, – so at Texas Monthly, that was the first publication that I worked for. I guess maybe lots of people know what Texas Monthly is, but it's a monthly magazine based in Austin that has produced great um, narrative long, – long-form narrative nonfiction for years and years and years, decades – uh, many great writers have come out of there, and I felt very lucky to uh, get a job there. I applied and did a job tryout and then got hired, and um, that was the first place where I got to write longer stories, mm-hmm. and they had very you know, f- fabulous editors there, very, very, very good editors there to work with. So that was really the first time that you were writing kind of longer form stuff. Yeah. Everything before then had been short, pretty much. So... And Texas Monthly is known for having some of the best editors around. So when you first kind of dove into the world of long-form writing for Texas Monthly, what sort of advice did they give you? What sort of – how do they kind of hold your hand as you kind of worked your way into that? Um, I'm not sure hand-holding was the forte of the editor-in-chief when I was there. <laughs> um, there were a number of times where I would turn something in and he would say – why don't you try rewriting this? Um, and I would say, okay, um, you know, do you want to say what's wrong with it? And he goes, I just think you should run it through the typewriter one more time, start to finish. <laughs> I'd be like, okay. So, so no kind of more specific piece? No, I mean, it was kind of sink or swim. You're sort of on your own. Yeah. The, the hand-holding that I got and the support that I got was very much from my fellow writers. And we... Uh, had a habit of sharing our stories with one another, and I would get great advice from them. The best advice I got was actually not from a fellow Texas Monthly writer, though. I was um, I was out. My my writing was sort of uh, mediocre. I I would say back then I was I was I was wishing I could write like people in the New Yorker magazine, even though I was at Texas Monthly. And so I would write these really long compound sentences, and um, they were sort of complex. And somehow I was getting away with it, but I um, was sent to report a story uh, in Houston about um, a program where they were training astronauts by having them float in this pool of water sort of in a – it was a really strange program, but you, you, they were basically like suited up like astronauts, but they were floating in a big circular bubble thing in a pool, and somehow this was supposed to make them feel like they were in space. And uh, a bunch of different journalists had been sort of brought in to admire NASA's pool <laughs> program for the astronauts, and we were we were all kind of, you know, taking notes and I was furiously taking notes, writing down everything. And there was this one guy who was like just watching and every once in a while he might write one sentence. Um, it was Lawrence Gonzalez who's written a whole lot of novels and nonfiction books. And, um, he's, a uh, he lives in Chicago where he's very well known. And, um, he and I became friends. Uh, he was, you know, probably 10 or 15 years older than I was. And, um, I shared some of my writing with him and he said, you know, 
you have this one problem in your writing and I can help you with it because I used to have the same problem. You want to write these long sentences like you think you want to write for the New Yorker magazine and I want you to uh, graph your sentences. It's not graph. What do you call that when you... Diagram. Diagram your sentences. He goes, diagram this sentence for me and I looked at it and I was like, I cannot find the subject and the verb of this sentence because it doesn't... They, it doesn't have them. <laughs> they're they're not really there. Like it was a series of words masquerading as a subject, verb, object, but really it was so convoluted that you could not diagram this sentence. And he's like, write sentences that can be diagrammed. And so then that was like literally the, the this key piece of advice that totally changed my writing. And from then on, it was subject, verb, object, and sentences that had really sound structure a good foundation not these weird amalgamations of words that do you actually diagram out your sentences i did for a little while wow. until i got That's in the habit impressive. of i didn't think anyone actually had ever diagrammed a sentence other than when you were in crazy you know if you if you if you if you have a student or if you feel this way about your own writing although that's harder cuz it's hard to judge but if you're teaching and you have a student whose sentences are just whose writing feels vague and cloudy Get the get the student to diagram their sentences, and it'll all become clear why the writing is vague and cloudy. Because, you know, they will have forgotten their basic grammar, and they will have gone away from this idea that a subject does an action, and there might be an object. Mm. You know. So as you were saying, it was really a sink or swim at Texas Monthly. Yeah. So you would define your own stories. Yeah. So how did you go about doing that? Especially when you, you know, you'd move from New York to Texas. Like, how did you go about, like, trying to yeah. kind of find these stories? So, Texas Monthly had a system where you, you um, everyone, every month, everybody had to show up for a large group meeting, and you had to pitch three ideas to this sort of semi-terrifying editor-in-chief figure. Um, and there were many people on staff for whom this was their strength. You know, the ideas were their forte. I remember this one guy, Skip Hollinsworth, based in Dallas, um, longtime Texas Monthly writer, and he would come with like 10 great ideas every time. Ideas are not my forte. It's my weak point, my weakest area. I'm very slow to come up with my ideas. I have these long, fallow periods in between any writing assignment and the next thing. So this was painful for me, but a great, um, you know... Uh, way to learn. Um, I generally got my ideas one of two ways, either by reading the newspaper and thinking about what's in the news or just taking people out to lunch and just asking them what's going on and what do they care about? What are they thinking about right now? So, so, so within that process of looking for stories in the paper or meeting with people and asking them what's going on, how, like, did you have a set of criteria or do you have a set of criteria to say, okay, this, this, this might make a real story. I mean, how do you kind of, like, what does to hit the bells for that? How do you figure that out? You know, um, I go by feel, but I'm, I'm fresh from Colorado Springs where I was down at Colorado College and I'm, I'm teaching there um, at the moment uh, for a few weeks and um, they have a journalist in residence program and this question came up with two of the masters in the room. And I was like 
on the edge of my seat listening because I need to learn still. I mean, this is not, again, what I think of as my strong suit, the idea phase. But um, So Hampton Sides was moderating, and Daniel James Brown was their guest author. Daniel James Brown's the author of Boys in the Boat, which has been on the bestseller list now for like two years. Uh, a story about this unlikely crew team, young men uh, uh, from very impoverished backgrounds, a lot of hardship during the Depression, whose crew team at um, on the West Coast ended up beating all the East Coast crew teams and then going to the Olympics um, in a very sort of unlikely story, um, uh, uh, underdog uh, sort of triumph kind of story. And... Um, Hampton Sides is the author of many bestsellers like Blood and Thunder, most recently in the Kingdom of Ice. So again, it's narrative nonfiction, which is my genre, but um, they write these books that spend years on the bestseller list. I'm like, how do they do it? So they seem to have this checklist of things that they're looking for, and they're looking for um, uh, uh, a set of heroes that have certain qualities um, that seem to resonate in the American psyche, like underdogs who are resilient and have a lot of grit and uh, humility, um, humor. Uh, they, they want villains. And in Boys in the Boat, for example, Daniel James Brown has like Hitler. Uh, and, and He's a good villain. Uh, the, uh, Always works. Goebbels and the Nazi team uh, watching this, you know, uh, Olympic race and um, sort of stacking the deck so the Americans are meant to lose and the Germans will win and uh, they don't. The Americans win in this big upset. Uh, so, and um, Daniel James Brown was talking also about how he he likes to have a complicated sort of hi- moment in history as the background for his. Story and just a great yarn, you know, a, a story with like a lot of uh, great characters and plot turns. So, so they they had their checklist, and I was I was thinking, yeah, I need to I need to think about what my checklist is, but I don't think that way. But okay, but I, I, you're getting lunch with someone. Okay, yeah, the way I go about it is different. Yeah. I, I I tend to start with just a germ of an idea of something that I'm interested in, like illegal immigration or what's it like to come home after a deployment. I mean, I'll just start with that, only that much of an idea. And then I just start talking to people who are close to that subject until I find somebody where I'm like, I could talk to that person for four years. And then I think, well, okay, that's the person I would want to write a book about. Um, and I want to get back to that process, yeah. especially for uh, soldier girls. But before I get that, I mean, you say that you, you know, that. That you have a hard time finding stories, but then you look at the variety of stories. For that, for example, you even just wrote in like the five years or so you worked for Texas Monthly, and there was this huge variety from kind of from profiles of people in power like Tom DeLay or John Glenn to uh, folks who are the opposite, like uh, Muslim Americans working to assimilate in Texas. Um, which to me, which just shows like this wide kind of spectrum mm-hmm. of what you're interested in. I mean, how is it different, kind of profiling? or writing about the folks at the top versus the folks at the bottom? Which do you prefer? Um, so uh, I was interested in politics, and I was writing about political figures like Tom DeLay, but I was very frustrated by that process because they're so skilled at uh, keeping the media at a 
quite a distance that you never really feel as though you're getting to write about um, the real human being. Uh, you know, and there's often there's elaborate um, public relations apparatus that you have to work through. So I felt very frustrated by that process. So I really sort of pushed off from the experience of writing about electoral politics to wanting to write about the issues that might be important, um, but really writing through the lens of an ordinary human being's personal experience of whatever that issue might be. And then I found, you know, just great joy in getting to know human beings who are not constantly sort of masking or protecting themselves or having this public relations armor up and just really spending hours and hours getting to know people living through some humongous issue. So if you had your druthers, you wouldn't be doing more of the kind of profiling the folks at the top anymore. I don't think so. I think for me it's much more satisfying to find, um, you know, somebody who – uh, feels to me like I, I say an ordinary human being, and what do I mean by that? Um, just, just uh, um, somebody who doesn't think of themselves as like, um, you know, heading up a whole industry or or um, running the United States or anything like that. Who, somebody who thinks of themselves as this very uh, humble, ordinary person. Um, yet who's living through extraordinary circumstances and whose whose life can somehow illustrate what is some big issue of our time. Yeah, that would be my checklist probably if I had one. So one thing that kind of stands out for me at least uh, reading your writing is your ability to kind of capture these really vivid scenes. Even scenes that where there's a lot of different kind of balls up in the air at once. Um, We hear Tom DeLay profile... for example, where you would be, where for this profile of Tom Delay, and what year was this? Was this was part would of have the, been the impeachment? Nineteen nineties. Yeah, and you kind of captured these kind of these kind of really intense moments at the Capitol with you know these back and forth with these different kind of kind of persons of power, and um, kind of capturing the these moments and capturing all the different pieces can be, can be a really difficult process for a journalist. So, so what are your kind of tricks? How do you kind of, kind of step into a moment and collect all the information that you need mm-hmm. to later use in your writing? You know, I, I try, I'm, I'm a fairly quiet person. I'm a classic introvert. So I, you know, my one <laughs> skill or forte, um, that that I know I really own is I'm I'm just a great listener and you can put me anywhere and I'll I'll find a quiet corner and I'll just uh, take stuff in I'm not you know there are other writers who really excel at sort of putting people at their ease because they're extroverted and they're gregarious and you know I can think of journalists who work that way I'm terrible at that uh, but you know if if there's something unfolding in front of me I will really um, sort of get deeply quiet. I, it's almost like I erase myself. I feel as though I don't exist. And I just become a set of eyes and ears and, you know, a heart and a, a mind just trying to catch every nuance of whatever's happening um, in front of me. And I I think I'm good at, at listening on multiple levels, you know, to what, what's being said and also what's not being said or, or what might be being said in very very subtle ways. Um, so, and it's all with just uh, 
a pen and notebook, or what do you? That that's my favorite uh, method. But um, somewhere along the line, in one of these books, when I was reporting, uh, you know, uh, for for weeks on end, I did get carpal tunnel syndrome. Um, so. It, taking notes now is harder for me. My arm will get tired and stuff like that. It'll start to hurt. So I do use a tape recorder now, but I, a, a notebook and pen is my ideal way to go about it. So, I have a very elaborate personal shorthand. Do you? That only I can read. Yes. So is actual shorthand? Or is it just really messy? No, it's like just me? like made up words that, like, I know what the abbreviations are, but it wouldn't make any sense can to anybody you can else. Can you give me an example or two? Um, well, Anytime there's any change, I just do a delta sign, and time is just an X. So some of it's mathematical. And then, That's super cool. <laughs> it's weird. Um, you know, people, it's just P. Um, something is SG. Uh, I've got, there's a, I can abbreviate most of the common words in the English language in my own personal Do you ever look at your idiom. notes and be like, I have no idea what I was writing here? Yeah. Yeah. But not usually. Yeah, every now <laughs> So, so after Texas Monthly, you, you freelanced for a bit, and then yeah. you embarked on uh, Just Like Us. Yeah. So, you know, we already talked about, like, you know, the concept of how to find these stories, find these narratives. Mm-hmm. How did you say, you know, and how do you now say, okay, this, this is not only a potential nonfiction story, this is a potential nonfiction book. So, like, how did that first, uh, the conception of the first book come about, and how was that process of... Of, you know, of finding differentiating between kind of magazine stories, yeah, and book stories, right? Well, um, with the first book, what happened was I I knew so I had um, moved to Denver, gotten married, had a child. Um, I was sort of I had taken a year off of writing, and I was sort of getting back into it in this way where. I wasn't sure who I was going to be writing for, um, but I I knew I was interested in the subject of immigration. I kind of wanted to try radio reporting, which I'd never done before. And after having just taken this break for a, a year off from the magazine writing, I was I was you know thinking I might change things up a little bit. So I started off. I did a radio documentary with the four young women in Just Like Us, and the radio documentary was entirely um the the chronology was the end the second half of their senior year of high school and the question before them was you know four girls split down the middle in terms of their legal status who are best friends would they all make it into college or were two of them going to be left behind and um uh folks at CPR and at KGNU helped me uh pull together the radio documentary which was really fun um and it aired on KGNU, and then Soundprint, which is a national documentary uh, radio show, picked it up, which was great. Um, this American Life did a tiny little snippet of it, and uh, I thought the story was done because all four girls did. The story had a happy ending. All four girls got into college, and um, I just stayed in touch with the girls because they're incredibly interesting. And you know, I went to visit them at their dorm room at DU, and I was hanging out with them, and. Uh, one of them said to me, oh, you know, my mom was just arrested. And then Yadira started telling me the story of her mother's arrest. And it was at that point that I started thinking, oh, maybe there's actually a book here. Um, maybe the story's not, not finished yet. Um, 
And it was another year before I wrote a book proposal. So at the point when I wrote my proposal, which was like 100 pages long, the whole script of the radio documentary was like appended to it as a, you know, demonstration. I could do something start to finish. I don't know why it was <laughs> appended really. But um, there, I knew the girls really well. I could describe their characters. And, and half the story had unfolded. So... For a nonfiction book proposal, for you to have half the story already is unusual because a lot of people, times people write proposals sooner in their process and there's, there's, they can't map out as much of the story because it hasn't happened yet sometimes. So the, I think part of the strength of the proposal was I had two, three, three probably two years of uh, reporting under my belt already, two and a half. Uh, now, as part of that, Pre-reporting and then for reporting the actual book, you kind of, kind of shadow these young women for for quite a long period of time, and you kind of kind of live their lives. That to me as a writer is something I've been fascinated by, which is actually kind of kind of writing about young people. But I but I always find it it's such a challenge because as soon as you as an adult journalist kind of kind of enter the room with these young people, everything shifts, right? So it's like, so how do you? Uh, how did you kind of insert yourself into this world without, you know, without doing like a fast times bridge on high? Yeah. You know, pretend to be like a, some sort of college student or something. That would have been fun. Would have been fun. Um, I um, did not know how to do it at the beginning. And I remember um, I had. Um, found a couple other writers and we had formed a, a writer's group and I um, remember going to my writer's group and saying um, does anybody know how to just hang out with people because <laughs> I keep interviewing these girls and if I don't stop I'm going to scare them off. I just keep like firing questions at them because that's what I do because I'm a journalist but I can tell this is not what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm, I need to just like stop asking them questions and just let them do what they do but um i'm not i'm not really that good at it and i really literally had to train myself to stop interviewing them because my my habit of interviewing people was you know i'd already spent probably 15 years um making my living that way and it was really hard to learn how to stop asking questions mm. And as as long as you're sitting there with a pen and a notebook and you're firing questions at somebody, you are not getting their real life at all. I mean, they are just only focused on answering your questions, and it's very artificial. So you see nothing of what they would be doing if you were not in the room. Um, it's, it it was hard. I had not done a lot of reporting that was just obs- observing. How long did you find that you had to be just observing before the point came like okay now now I'm really seeing their real life they aren't you know that I'm actually kind of seeing what the world is like you know an institution like a high school or a college is a wonderful um, place to 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 go if you want to observe somebody because they get caught up in their world there pretty quick I mean there are kids you know I, I just sort of 
blend into the wallpaper or something and and do my thing where I'm off on the side of the room and you know there are other people in the room asking them things dialogue is happening they're interacting with their teacher they kind of forget that you're there Mm -hmm. halfway and um if you get yourself in the right position like that where where they're engaged with in activities uh, it, it can start happening very quickly and now in just like us, you use some first person. Yeah. Um, how and why did you make that decision? And just in your writing in general, how do you figure out when using a first person is necessary or is useful versus when first person should just not be part of the process? Yeah. I, um, the class that I'm teaching, uh, right now is narrative nonfiction writing about inequality. And I'm teaching both works of participatory journalism. So one example is Ted Conover's book, Coyote, where he um, is, is writing in the first person about his experiences traveling to Mexico, crossing the border with a coyote, coming to the U.S. and doing migrant farm work with all the people that he crossed with. Um, and some others that he meets along the way. Um, And that book is written from the first-person perspective about his experience of trying to do migrant farm work and his experience interacting with people entering the U.S. without legal permission and what their lives are like. Uh, Another example of participatory journalism that we're reading is uh, Barbara Ehrenreich's Nickel and Dimed, where she's going out and getting a job for a certain amount of money an hour, trying to make a living on it, writing about how hard that is. And then... Uh, later, we're looking at works of quote-unquote immersion journalism, and the, the uh, Behind the Beautiful Forevers by Catherine Boo is a classic that we're going to be reading, where you know she spent four years living, well, not living, but visiting this slum in India um, to the point where she could write about it, it's such a beautifully written book and it really truly does read like a novel more so than any nonfiction book that I know of um, and she has these amazing characters um, that she develops so fully you care completely about uh, the lives of these people and you had no idea walking in that um, this slum was going to be so rich in drama and personality and so that so much was going to be happening there um, and she never writes from the first person at all, right? So we're looking at books and we're looking at this question of point of view. And um, I'm happiest as an immersion mm. journalist when when I'm reporting and, and, and in the writing. And I had intended for Just Like Us to be uh, a work of immersion journalism where there would never be, I would never be on the page. But uh, in the end, you know, the way that events unfolded, I was doing that reporting, and then at the same time, uh, my husband at the time uh, be- had become an elected official, mayor of Denver at the time, and then, um, if you've read the book, you know uh, uh, this story well, you know, um, Raul Gomez Garcia shot and killed a police officer, and he turned out to work at a restaurant owned in part by John. And at that point, I had two choices. I could pretend that didn't happen and just focus on the story I was trying to tell, or I could try to write about 
the murder of the police officer as well as the story of these straight A students and incorporate everything. And then I would have to use the first person. So I, I ended up deciding that the book was a bigger book and a better book, including the story of Raul Gomez Garcia, who was also an immigrant without legal status in the U S um, and, uh, you know, his crime, as well as the triumphs of these straight-A students who are trying so hard to make it in the U.S. by doing everything right. Um, and I thought it got at more of the conundrum of the immigration debate by including the second story. And that was why I wanted to include it. So I, I felt forced into the first person so okay, which I was not originally planning to use at all. So after that first kind of experience, getting almost forced into first person, did it kind of shift your perspective on the potential value of sometimes using first person? Have you found yourself using it since then? More, I didn't know? use it at all in Soldier yeah. Girls, which is completely um, written from the third person point of view, and for me that was more comfortable. I'm back right now. Um, Using the first person in something that I'm not really sure what it is. I don't know if it's going to be a book. Um, I'm writing about a friendship I have with a Spanish-speaking mom from my son's elementary school who um, has had many struggles in her life. Uh, And I find her life very dramatic uh, and, and fascinating. And she has an incredible... Uh, personality and spirit. She is um, an amazing chef, which is something that you only know if you'll, you know, go to her house when she invites you for dinner. And very few of the parents at our elementary school got to know her well, um, unless they were Spanish speaking. Um, and you know, I've had many, many meals at her house, and she's this amazing person who uh, struggles with breast cancer during our the elementary school years that our, our sons went through. And uh, her husband had died years before when she was pregnant with her son. And so when she was battling breast cancer, the question hanging over her was, was her son about to become an orphan? And it was very much on her mind, obviously very much in her son's mind, who started to stutter during this period of time and everything. And what I found fascinating and sad and very true about our society was there were these wonderful moms running the school in the PTA almost all white and none of them knew Evelyn and none of them knew that she was sick and then the people bringing Evelyn meals when she was really at her most incapacitated were the school nurse and the school psychologist and her son's third grade teacher and my son's third grade teacher and um, the school social worker. Hmm. Um, So there was just this, you know, our kids went to school under the same roof, but they were not living in the same world. There were two worlds within the one school. There were more worlds than just two because there were so many different languages spoken at that school. I mean, the Arabic-speaking moms were a world unto themselves. And But you could see all of our divisions there. And the PTA moms were incredibly generous souls. They would have 
rushed to bring her a meal if they had inhabited the same world as her, but they just didn't even know um, her story or what was happening because that's how little we really talked to one another. Um, so, so, so you might, in whatever form that this that this generates, you might be using first person to help kind of illustrate. Your own perspectives on this? Well, she is a friend of mine. She's not somebody that I've been interviewing for a book. I've just been friends with her. And the idea of writing about her came from the principal of our school who said, would you please write about Evelyn? Because we don't understand one another. And, you know, I have all these different parents in this school. And one group of parents will say something about another group of parents, but they don't really know what the other group of parents is like and vice versa. So, you know, and I, I tried writing about her back then and, and then she got really sick and I was like, I cannot write about somebody who's a friend of mine while they're sick. I just need to like bring dinner over and not, so I sort of put it aside for a long time. Now I'm in the middle of taking it back out and trying to figure out what is it? Is it an essay? Could this be a book? What would it be if it was a book? How would that go? She makes a living selling burritos at um, Rockies games and Broncos games, so I'm trying to write a book that's like about baseball and football and Evelyn. <laughs> I don't know if it's going to work. <laughs> well, I want to take a step back for a second and, uh, and talk a bit about your second book, uh, Soldier Girls. As you said, you know, it started with this kind of German, German of an idea, which was this idea it comes with like, what's it like for these people returning from deployment? Um, eventually, you know, um, it evolved into you chronicling the lives of these three women, these um, who were in uh, the uh, Nevada, um, Indiana, Indiana. I'm sorry, yeah. Indiana, um, Indiana uh, reserves. And uh, so, my question is: How did you how did you get from that first from that first concept to finding? Okay, here are the three people that that I can live with for several years. How did you, how did you, did you identify those three people? And what was it about these three that said, okay, these are the guys I can um, It took a while. And, um, you know, uh, one of the reasons that I've enjoyed so much getting to know people at Lighthouse is that I believe so much in the mission here. Um, I think writers need community it's a very lonely business, especially when you're in between projects. There's nothing lonelier than a writer without a a book project. Um, uh, So um, I really needed my my writer friends and my editor uh, to believe in me for the year that it took of me, like, wandering in the wilderness, what will I write about next? Um, So I'd had the thought of... um, okay, there are a lot of veterans coming home from these deployments, and I know that I live in a state where there are a lot of veterans, and I'm fascinated by this idea of like trying to return home, and you can't return home because home is, you know, at least a year ago, and you were a different human being. So you can't, you can't find your old self again, so you can't really return home to, to that, that former time. You're just going to be different, and circumstances will be different. So you're going to try and return home, but you're going to, it's going to be something other than the home that you knew. You're going to have to sort of continue the journey by going forward. There's no 
going back. So that was what was really interesting to me. So I just started interviewing veterans, and I did so many interviews with veterans who were absolutely wonderful people who did not want to tell me their story. And, you know, um, I don't blame them. Um, A lot of them were men, and I just found that I was not the right person for a male veteran, you know, who'd served in the Marines to talk to. Um, I was like miles away from that person's reality. And then I found the women easier to talk to. They felt that they shared more with me. They were more willing to open up. But really, I didn't feel that I had found anybody who was... uh, It was very different when I um, first interviewed Michelle. You know, she was the first person I really felt like who was just opening up to me and telling me, like, the real... Uh, unadulterated, like no holds barred truth of of her experience of what the military was like, and um, you know I think that had a couple things going for me that that sort of paved the way that made her want to talk to me. So she had moved from Indiana to Denver. Um, she had read my first book already, and so she also was like. You know, the three women in the book are very different in their political views, and she's the most left-leaning of the three. She was a big critic of the military. She did not believe in the war in Iraq at all. She didn't even believe in the war in Afghanistan, which, you know, was out of the two wars, the more possibly justifiable. But she was even a critic of the war in Afghanistan. And um, so she viewed me as somebody, I think, who... Uh, might share her views. Um, I'm not actually as left-leaning as she is, but you know, I think she saw me as, as a sympathetic ear. Uh, and I found her hilariously funny, super smart, and just willing to share. She has kind of a sociologist's mind, and she was just telling me stories about what it was like to be female in the military that I just hadn't heard before that were so interesting. And when she started talking about her friend Desma, who's a single mom with three children, who did a deployment to Afghanistan with Michelle and then went on a second deployment, deployed with a previously all-male unit, 98 men and two women for a year in Iraq, you know, leaving her kids for a second time, I was like, I didn't even know we were deploying single moms. I did not understand that a woman would be told to leave her children and fulfill her deployment orders. How do I not know this? You know, um, I got very interested in their stories at that point. Now, of the three, of the three main characters, uh, Michelle is a pseudonym. Yeah. Uh, was that was that a difficult decision to make to say? Okay, one of my main characters. You know, I mean. Uh, it wasn't like you got to make the decision. I mean, I'm sure it was requested. By, but, but, but how did that impact uh, your writing by having to do Yeah, to do you know, um, I felt I had to offer um, pseudonyms to the young women in Just Like Us because they didn't have legal status. And how could I put them in danger by using their real names? So I... I, you know, with my editor's permission, I used pseudonyms in the first book. Michelle, having read the first book, I mean, her first question to me was, are you going to use our real names when I said I'd like to write a book about your experiences? And, you know, I said, well, let's talk about that. I really would like to use real names, if at all possible. You know, as a work of journalism, it has greater credibility, greater strength, if I can use real names. But um, 
you know, what issues does that raise for you? And they had a bunch of issues that, um, so um, they didn't know that if they wanted to be fully candid about their personal lives, if they had to use their real names, each of them had um, things they were willing to share about which they felt ashamed, uh, but they thought it was an important part of the story. But if it was included, they didn't know if they wanted their name attached or not. And then Desma had the biggest issues of all because at that point in time, she was still in the National Guard and had a job of... her her quote-unquote day job was on an army post, plus she was in the Guard on weekends. So um, she thought she might get kicked out of the Guard or lose her job or both. Uh, So I offered them pseudonyms, and um, ultimately we decided they would read... I would share the manuscript with my publisher's permission. They would read the manuscript, and then they would make up their minds about real names or not. And I had always thought that all three would decide on pseudonyms or all three would decide on real names and instead Debbie and Desma were like you absolutely have to use our real names like this is our story we're proud of what we lived through we want our names in the book we can't imagine another person's name that would be so weird and Michelle of all people who had persuaded Debbie and Desma to talk to me when they were maybe a little more reluctant Michelle was the one who said yeah this is my story and I think you should tell the whole story, including you know the affair that I had with a married man while I was deployed. But I'm really not comfortable with you using my real name, and I really want a pseudonym. And I think for Michelle, it was partly that you know she did get the tuition dollars that she was entitled to under the GI Bill. She had now, at this point, gone to college. She was moving into a white-collar job, unlike anybody else in her whole family. And I think she feared that in her new circumstances that she would be judged for either the her family background and things about her family that were um, complicated and had to do with poverty that she was still struggling with to be comfortable with, or this affair. And so she really wanted the pseudonym so that she could tell somebody or not if it was her in that book. She wanted that anonymity. One other interesting wrinkle that I noticed was you note how in your kind of detailed descriptions of uh, Desma's background, you note that her husband, uh, Dennis, has, has a different description of the events. When you're working on recreating um, these these scenes and these narratives. I mean, how do you deal with uh, with folks who kind of challenge? Yeah. These kinds? Well, it's a great question, and it's a really big issue. You know, for nonfiction writers, this question of of recreating or reconstructing. Um, there are loads of nonfiction writers who I really, really admire who will not do it, who will only write about things they've witnessed firsthand. And they just believe that people's memories are not fully reliable and that you cannot actually reconstruct something. It's not possible to do it. You will you will have a biased point of view. Um, I'm, I'm sympathetic to that point of view, but I think um, a lot of the journalism that that I love does include reconstructed material. So um, I tried to do a couple things. Um, I tried to interview people, you know, repeatedly. I tried to make sure I always interviewed multiple people about if there was a scene, I tried to have multiple sources for any scene. Um, Desma early on her. So when I met Desma, she was one year back from Iraq 
She had PTSD and an injury, a head injury. Um, she could not tell a story start to finish. She was wildly achronological. She was jumping around a lot. Anything she said would remind her of something else. She would kind of get lost a little bit in jumping around with her stories. And um, I noticed that when she would tell me stories different times, they would be a little bit different. And I, I felt that I trusted her very much, and um, but I needed to check what she was telling me because she was not telling me the same thing exactly the same way every time. And I found that when I would go check Desma's memories, that she was incredibly accurate. Everything she said was verifiable. I, you know, If she told me that somebody committed a crime, I could find the court documents. If she told me a car was a certain color, I would later find a photograph and it would be that color. Like Everything she was telling me was backed up, except um, c- conflicts. When she had conflicts with people, she clearly, I think, went into some kind of triggered state, and she would have a version of events that was true for her, and it would not be the same as whatever person she was having a conflict with. They would have like a different version of events. And I sort of wanted to show that with her ex-husband, because she had told me so many things about him, and then when I talked to him... They would be like the same stories, but a completely different version. And then I I ended up just putting their different competing versions, you know, side by side at key junctures. An example is like Desma recalls an argument where things got physical and he shoved her into a glass door, which broke and she wound up with a big shard of glass in her back. And he says, yes, we had a fight and... Yes, she ended up with glass in her back, but no, I didn't push her. That thing was broken already, and she stepped away from me and stepped back into it. I don't know who to believe. It's totally not clear to me. All I know is they had a fight, and she ended up with a big piece of glass in her back. And they and they have a marriage full of conflict, and there's just two versions of what that moment is. And so, you know, I think the reader can judge. So I try to tell both versions. And that potential problem for you as a writer ends up becoming part of the narrative. You actually use these different kind of yeah, and I, th- to help I th- illustrate like the potential blockage that she might have. Right. I think I think the reader understands that Desma's uh, the kind of person who has a chip on her shoulder, gets into conflicts, and does have her version of events, and it might not be square with everybody else's. So you considered and chose not to travel to Iraq or Afghanistan. For the book. Um, now, why were you considering doing that to begin with? And then when you made the decision that that did not make sense, how did you work around that yeah. in terms of capturing these places? Um, so, uh, you know, previously in my life, I have always gone wherever I needed to go to get a story. And this was the first time that I made a decision not to go somewhere that I knew really it would be good if I went in terms of me uh, doing research that would benefit the book. And there was no doubt in my mind that um, the book would be better if I went to Afghanistan and if I went to Iraq and that my descriptions of the place would would be richer. Um, But it was 2010 when I started talking to these women and I was reporting on the previous decade of their lives. By 2010, both war theaters had gotten very unstable. 
the level of violence had gotten very high in both theaters. Journalists were being kidnapped. People were being held for ransom. And I have a son. So I just decided not to go because I'm a mother. And it, I didn't think the benefit was worth the risk. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's the only time in my life that I can think of a time where, you know, previously, uh, I remember, you know, once reporting on the murder of a woman and one of her potential murderers, a suspect in the case had fled to Spain and I got in touch with him and asked to interview him and he said, sure, come to Spain. So I did. I went, you know, that was risky. That was dangerous, but I didn't have a child at that time. So I, I just couldn't sort of put myself in that sort of a risky position with a, a son who, you know, was still in K K 12. Now you're still able to really kind of, kind of create these incredibly. Yeah. So, um, what I did was read everything I could find, um, including fiction about Iraq or Afghanistan. Um, there's a bunch of books that I relied on that are in the acknowledgments. There are such incredible books being written about Iraq and Afghanistan. And I know people, I think, have a sense like um, we were inundated for a decade with stories in the newspapers that didn't always make sense. And you didn't always know where the cities were that they were talking about. The wars were hard to follow. And we just got saturated with, you know, reporting on it that was hard to make sense of. And I think everybody got tired of it. And just at that point when everybody got tired, these great books started coming out of these conflicts. And, oh, my God, the novels and the nonfiction books that have been written at this stage, it's some of the best writing that I've ever read in my whole life. Uh, So I'm thinking of The Good Soldiers and Thank You for Your Service by David Finkel, who's a Washington Post journalist who spent eight months in Baghdad in 2007, the most violent year of the Iraq War, and wrote about what modern infantry combat looks like in the era of IEDs. That's an, those are unbelievable books. And then um, The Forever War by Dexter Filkins, who's a New York Times reporter who spent many years in Afghanistan. Um, his book on Afghanistan is so beautiful that I I was sad when I finished it and it's you know it's a grim subject but he's just such a great writer Yellow Birds um, is a novel about um, combat in Iraq written by a veteran who returned home who is a a phenomenal writer Um, you know when the men are gone by Siobhan Fallon who you know is writing from the perspective of a spouse living on a active duty post. I could keep going, but they're in the acknowledgement section. But anyway, I read every book that I could find. Um, I hope these books get their due. Uh, I know everybody's sort of tired of reading about the wars, but really, if you want to understand what this last decade has been about, it's there on those pages, and it's you will not be sorry that you read these books. They're amazing. Uh, and then I just plagued my subjects with questions over and over and over again but what color was this you know can you describe that i just interviewed them and re-interviewed them until they were sick of hearing from me so you ended up with about four years of interviews all this background material including diaries medical reports military reports how did you how did you take all of that how did you how did you structure it and then and then kind of create your narrative was it something that you'd have to 
that you kind of had to structure it throughout the process of all the reporting? Or did you end up with this massive pile? You're like, shoot, what am I going to do? Um, so I did two things. One involved three-ring binders, and then the other involved a visual map. So I um, do end up with way too much material uh, every time I do this. And um, so I took all my interviews and all my uh, ancillary reporting, like newspaper articles that was were related or photographs that they had taken while they were on their deployments or the newsletters that their battalion generated or the weather reports that I could find, all that stuff. And I put it in chronological order in three ring binders, which is easier said than done. It was really hard because Desma's interviews were so achronological. I had to take her interviews apart and reorder the pages to get the story in a, a chronological line. Oh, it was line. all handwritten notes as opposed to... Type. No, they were um, transcribed okay. interviews uh, that, that I would then sort of reorder mm-hmm. the pages. Um, and then I could just take out one three-ring binder at a time, like... Desma pre-deployments was one binder. Michelle pre-deployments, that was one binder. Debbie pre-deployment. Then there was Afghanistan, that was a binder. There were the time, the years in between Afghanistan and Iraq, and then I had an Iraq binder. But So the whole story was there essentially in, in chronological order. But to help myself think of how I was structuring the book, I had sticky notes, three different colors, one color for each woman, and then I wrote my key scenes on sticky notes and then I put them up on the wall of my office or on the window of my office and then I could move them around but it's great to have color coded if you have three characters or say three storylines as the case may be it's great to have it be color coded because you can see how much Michelle you have versus how much Desma or how much Debbie and if you've been Michelle at the beginning is my main character but Desma's my main character at the end. So I needed a gradual uh, diminution, how do you say that word, of Michelle, and a gradual increase of Desma. Michelle is, how can I do these women justice? And Michelle is the most likable character to a certain kind of reader. Um, if you are educated... If you oppose the wars, if you um, um, would like to uh, support veterans and yet you don't know how you feel about the decisions that were made and the use of the U.S. military, you will love Michelle. You know, she enlisted in March 2001. She was 18. She describes herself as a pot-smoking hippie. She had just voted for Ralph Nader, and she had no idea what was coming. And she's in basic training when 9-11 happens. So she is the character who will engage all the readers that I can think of who might, you know, want to read this book and would never otherwise pick up a book about military history or the wars in Iraq or Afghanistan because they can relate to this young woman who's in this incredible predicament of, oh no, she's, you know, 9-11 has happened and she she is stuck in the military and she never envisioned a deployment coming her way. Um, whereas Desma is a character who's very hard to relate to and very hard to sympathize with, probably for most of my audience. Desma's grown up partly in foster care. She dropped out of high school. She had her first kid at 17. 
Um, she is tough. She's got a, a, a chipped tooth almost missing. You know, she, um, she makes interesting decisions. She has interesting coping mechanisms. She is, uh, as she herself says, if you can't find me, I'm probably out having sex with somebody somewhere. Yeah, I have a bad reputation is what she'll say. Like, yeah, I'm the one everybody talks about in our unit because I sleep around. You know, she's going to be very tough and in your face when you first meet her. She's going to say things like that about herself. And if you are at all judgmental, she will just never speak to you again. You know, she is she is this really tough woman who's lived through a lot. Well, by the end of the book, you are just rooting for her. She is in Iraq with 98 guys and all you want is for her to come home safe and get back to her kids that she has left behind. But she's not an easy sell um, to this, say, you know, educated reader who might buy a book at the tattered cover and you've got to meet her slowly and you've got to see her through Michelle's eyes. You know, by the end of the book, I think everybody loves Desma, but at the beginning, everybody's like, oh my God, if Michelle hangs around with this woman, Desma, what is going to happen to her? She's going to totally wind up in trouble. I have a follow-up question to that. Um, it's clear that for you, kind of, characters are paramount. Now, do you also at some point say, okay, here, here are some of the big issues that I want to explore, whether it's what it's like to, as we talked about, to return home from deployment, uh, this kind of concept of women... Uh, in the military to just this concept of dealing with wounds, both physical and psychological. And if you think about hitting these issues, you know, do you, do you make an active decision to, to kind of, to kind of weave these issues in at certain, at certain points of the narrative or you, or do you let these issues like emerge organically just from the narratives that you're crafting from your characters? If that, if that makes you know, sense. at the outset, Really, like I go by feel. It's very sort of gut uh, determined. You know what? What did I know at the outset? I knew that um, Michelle uh, really held my attention and was was a great storyteller, and that I could listen to Michelle talk all day long. And I knew I'd never met anybody like Desma in my whole life. That's kind of all I knew. I could also see in my first meeting with Desma where every five minutes she needed a cigarette break. I could actually see PTSD. I could, it was right in front of me. And I thought, um, PTSD sounds awful and scary. You don't, you don't want to even know somebody with PTSD. But if you meet somebody with PTSD, and you know, you, I think you can become instantly sympathetic to the struggle that's obviously going on inside that person. Uh, so uh, meeting her, I thought, oh, my God, she can bring to life this issue that people talk about in this you know, uh, way that's not very engaging. Mm-hmm. She can help us um, experience it secondhand. Um, we've talked a bit about this, but clearly it's a lot of work, uh, a lot of time spent, a lot of effort on your part as a journalist to, to allow your characters to feel comfortable and to open up and share their lives in this incredibly detailed, intimate level. It's something that, that, I, that I labor to do as a journalist as well. It's something that, that I teach about. And yet, for me, um, you know, and I say it so people feel comfortable with me and they can share their stories, but in the back of my head, I'm always thinking, like, is this just me 
being self-serving because I want to create the best story possible, and I do that by making my subjects as comfortable as possible. Um, do like, you? Is do, there a betrayal involved? Well, that's the thing. It's like not necessarily, but but for me, I still feel like you know. I think like you, you know, I come, I try to be as kind of unassuming as possible to make people comfortable, and I'm like, and I worry about what is my true reason for doing it. I could say it's so these people can tell their story as truthfully as possible, but it's also because I want to kind of create the best story. And do you ever do you ever struggle with 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 uh, working so hard to have people? open up and the trust that is placed upon you to do their story justice um you know i think that uh what i think about when you ask that question is the moral obligation that i have to anybody who spends four years or six years talking to me and tells me such intimate things about themselves. Um, I never want that person to feel that they've been like stabbed in the back or something uh, by the experience. I never want them to go away thinking, you know, oh my gosh, she sort of gulled me into revealing things I really didn't want to make public and, and, and then have a bad feeling about the book. So in each case, I've sought and obtained my publisher's permission to share the manuscript with uh, the four girls in Just Like Us, and I also shared it with um, Kelly Young, who's the widow of the police officer who was killed, uh, because I thought the material could be traumatic for her family mm-hmm. as well. Um, and in the case of Soldier Girls, with the three three women that I was writing about. And I... I you know, it's a very uh, risky move, I guess, or it could, it could be. And, um, you know, I definitely have talked through with my editor in the publishing house. Was it okay? I had to, le- like, jump through hoops that the attorneys at the publishing house set up. Like, I had to get written things from the women that I was showing it to saying that they knew they didn't have editorial control or veto power, acknowledging that, all that stuff. But it's the right thing to do, I think, because... I wasn't going to feel good about the process unless I knew that it was a book they were going to be comfortable with before it went out in the world. And I felt I had to do that because they're not people in power who have a public relations flack at their side protecting them. Um, They have made themselves very vulnerable and I just don't want to be that person who puts a book out in the world that the subject hates if the subject is somebody that I have come to care about and that I admire and respect. So for me, it was very important that these women, you know, Desma, when I first met her, again, it's 2010, she's one year home from Iraq. Uh, Sorry, the, the second time I met her, she said, here is my military file, my medical file, and all my therapy notes. I know you're going to need documentation. Here it is. So she was thinking she needed to prove to me that she'd been in a bomb explosion, that she had post-traumatic stress disorder and all this stuff. But those are her therapy notes. I mean, she had taken out a couple pages that she didn't want me to read that were about a trauma that occurred in her childhood, which she never wanted to discuss. Otherwise, everything was there. And I thought four years later, 
okay, she was clearly traumatized in Iraq. She probably had childhood trauma as well. Um, I don't know that she was really protecting herself when she turned over all her therapy notes to a journalist she'd only met two times. Did she really want to do that? Does she really know what was in the notes? Does she remember four years later what she gave to me? Is she prepared for the book that's going to go out in the world? And is she comfortable with it? So that's why I thought, she has to read this manuscript. Like, I can't take all that from her and then uh, write whatever I want and not have her know what's coming. So I tried to square it by sharing the manuscript with them and making it okay that way. Well, I have more questions, but I actually want to uh, save some time and throw it out to the audience in case uh, folks have questions for Helen. Yeah. yeah sure. Um, how do you commit to a project like that, um, not knowing what the future holds in terms of the climate of receptive readership or... Um, it just seems like that would be a consideration. Or if you're not even thinking about marketability and readership, but you're just so committed to these stories. Because that was so topical, you know? And it was it's such a dynamic subject matter. I'm just curious how you... Yeah. Um, it's very hard for me to think about marketing or audience when I'm writing. Uh With two books out now, you know, I did have a conversation with my editor yesterday where I said to him, I don't know, you know, I'm trying to write this thing about Evelyn and I'm not sure it's a book and, um, you know, I have these other ideas and I'm not sure they're a book and I'm down here at Colorado College and Hampton Sides, his books have been on the bestseller list for this many weeks and... (laughs) Daniel James Brown and his books have been on and my editor just stopped me right in the middle of that and he's like what are you doing like you don't have to think about that you want what you want you walk in the supermarket you can't like you can't head for red delicious because more people buy red delicious you want gala apples like you want what you want you you just have to listen to yourself and what do you what resonates for you when you go out in the world I mean, he said also, like, very nice things. Like, you know, they're writing books that are nostalgic. They're about the past. You're writing about what's happening today. Don't compare yourself. It's, you know, two different kinds of apples. Sounds like a good editor. He's a great editor. So he he knew he had to alleviate me from that sense of worrying about a market share. I mean, I'm not going to think my way into a good book worrying about what else is on the bestseller list or how do you get on there or what do you do. You just have to be in a totally different frame of mind I think to find the story uh, because you, you have to be listening to your heart What, where is your heart pulling you I worried constantly with my first book mm. which was about immigration that it was going to be yesterday's news that you know people in Washington were actually. I thought they might actually do something, yeah. and then yeah. it wouldn't. It wouldn't be an, a big issue, and I would be writing a book about an issue that had been solved. You know, years after before my publication date, but yeah. But I feel like if you know happen. a story is a, a story is a story, right? I mean, if you find a good enough story, you know, stories never go out of style. It's not you know it's not about necessarily. I mean. 
the issue comes second. I feel like, at least for me, it's like when when I find a story, if it's strong enough, I mean, it could be, you know, it, it could come out tomorrow, it could come out three years from now, it could have come out 20 years before. It, if the story and the characters are compelling enough. Yeah. Um, you talked about when you were doing your first book, just kind of letting go of that kind of traditional journalism way of talking to people, interviewing people, taking notes. Right. And so when you did that, how did you, when you were kind of absorbing what was going on, being the observer, um, how did you remember? Did you go home and write notes? So I didn't mean to suggest that I stopped taking notes, but I stopped sitting down with people one-on-one and firing questions at them. So I still had my notebook with me, uh, but I was going to high school classes with the four young women sitting in the class classroom watching what was happening and if there was a you know a, a big conversation and they had a leading role in the conversation i was writing down the dialogue in real time cuz dialogue is one thing that's very hard to remember faithfully so i was definitely trying to capture the dialogue i was trying to write down what people were wearing or how they looked uh you know visual detail. I knew I would remember the, f- the feeling in the room because that stays with you, but the visual details, um, you know, any sights, sounds, that kind of stuff, any dialogue I had to capture. Um, the only times I really did not have a notebook out were maybe um, occasionally at parties that they would invite me to at their homes where I, I sort of, that would be really weird to be like sitting taking notes on the party but I would run in the bathroom and write notes on a little notebook and put it back in my pocket and then come back out again went to the bathroom a lot (laughs) yeah over the four years Desma was putting herself back together again and she was becoming more coherent and less fractured and more relaxed over time. She was in therapy that whole time. And um, so partly I could see her healing and I could partly see her returning to this um, very funny, very wry um, self um, I relied on Desma and then also Michelle and Debbie to tell me what she was like. And, and Michelle was very much able to describe Desma before and what, what the, the bomb blast had done. The main thing it had done, it made her hypervigilant so she couldn't relax. And um, she had, you know, her handing over her therapy notes was such an amazing thing, such a gift, because... She had two therapists. How to treat PTSD is a huge question. She had two therapists. They were both very good people, very well-intentioned, and they had two different approaches. So the first therapist wanted Desmond to talk about childhood trauma because there's a theory that you're more prone to get PTSD if you experienced trauma before as a child and then again as an adult. And that approach just made Desma really, really mad. And she already had anger management issues, so it was like dialing up her emotions. The second therapist did behavior modification therapy and was asking her to like sit in a crowded restaurant with her back to the door. And Desma couldn't do it. 
She could not have people come up behind her and not see who they were. The therapist was then, you know, asking her to do that over and over again until she could sit for longer periods of time. Asked her to sit in a movie theater and sit in the center of the theater, not near an exit. That was really hard for her. Just kept giving her homework assignments like that. And gradually, you know, Desma started to become less hypervigilant. She also made her, like, go over the traumatic moment in Iraq again and again until she had less visceral emotion when she thought about that moment. Um, She was a really, really talented therapist. Um, And I think the story of Desma healing through that therapy was a really important piece of the story, especially the Desma wanted told. She wanted other veterans to see that there actually was therapy that would work. Um, but I, I've thought of that question myself because I never knew Desma before Iraq. I didn't know what she was like beforehand. I didn't know how much of her was just her. Um, Did you see uh, videos of her? No. No. Mm-mm. Maybe one more question? Yeah. Do you, uh, yeah. Um, my tendency, okay, so there's this book that I love, Random Family by Adrienne Nicole LeBlanc, and, um, she was writing about, um, uh, she started off actually writing about the single most successful heroin dealer in the South Bronx, um, and she was writing about him for the Village Voice, but actually, her book is about his girlfriends and the girlfriend's family. And the heroin dealer becomes like a, a supporting character, and the main character really is his girlfriend and wh- why she wanted to be his girlfriend and what being his girlfriend meant. And then, you know, uh, it's a book with many characters. And and um, Adrian Nicole LeBlanc spent ten years reporting that book. I would spend 10 years reporting everything if I was left to my own devices. I don't have, I'm not comfortable, uh, I don't easily acquire a sense of authority that I can write somebody else's story. I don't feel entitled to do that very easily. And I will just report something forever because I feel like you never stop getting to know someone and, you, you know, every iteration of the interview yields kind of more um, s- levels. Uh, but my editor was great. He tricked me into writing, really, because he said, oh, you can keep reporting, no problem. Just keep going with the reporting. But why don't you start sending me one chapter a month at the same time? <laughs> and I was like, okay. Um, so, But it was good, actually, that he did that because it directed my reporting in the sense that when I started writing, I knew what I didn't know. I knew what I couldn't write. And then my questions would become much more focused on those areas. And I knew which scenes I wanted to focus on. And I would do the additional reporting, but just about that uh, aspect of it. Um, There's a wonderful book about... 
some of the great narrative nonfiction writers called the new new journalism. Rob best. Boynton, it's the best. best. And um, you see um, all the all these different authors that you'll have heard of, like John Krakauer, um, Ted Conover that I mentioned earlier, Adrian Nicola Blanc is in there. A whole bunch of other people you will have heard of as well. And he's each chapter is. Each author gets a chapter, and he just interviews them about them. Pretty much what we're doing tonight, really. This could be a chapter in the book. Um, and um, out of all of the authors in there, I identified the most with Adrienne Nicole LeBlanc because she said, "I never felt that I was entitled to write their story. I, I don't get that sense very easily." She she was talking about that. There's a kind of humility, maybe, in her approach where she she is always listening and always feels there's more to listen to. I'm kind of stuck in that mode, typically. So if I'm ever going to write a book, I need an editor to like somehow get me there. Last thing, and we're going to let everyone go, which is if you had to give the folks here a homework assignment, oh. what would it be? So you guys thought this was a free ride, right? <laughs> not exactly. Um, I'm not sure what homework assignment would benefit uh, somebody who's sitting here tonight, but I'll tell you the two homework assignments that I gave the students that I was working with this week that seemed to really be useful. Um, Pam Houston, uh, who teaches many workshops, I've taken a workshop from her, has this wonderful idea um, of how to get over writer's block, which is that um, if she's ever sort of stuck, or I think she now does this very conscientiously on a regular basis, she has something she calls a glimmer. And if you Google Pam Houston and glimmer, you'll you'll find what she means by that. Um, and it, for her, it's anything that her imagination kind of gets hooked by um, and wants to puzzle over. It can be a scene. Uh, it, it can be just a an aspect of nature that she's witnessed. It can be a bit of dialogue. So she will just catch what she calls glimmers. And often she'll structure a piece that she's doing by writing all the glimmers and then writing as little connective tissue between glimmers as possible. Mm. Um, So I assigned my students this week a glimmer and they came in and I just said, bring it by next morning. You know, this is on the first day of class. I'm like, write a glimmer tonight, bring it tomorrow morning. And they did. And then, I gave them something to read where an author had used a list in a really interesting way, and I asked them to come back the next day with a list uh, that said something about either themselves or a, a character. And I think, you know, when you see a list in a, in a short story that's used very effect. We were reading um, Sherman Alexie's um, Because My Father Always Said He Was the Only Indian to Listen to Jimi Hendrix Play the Star Spangled Banner at Woodstock. A short story with a really long title, um, and he has a list about his father, and it's about um, him and his dad bonding over listening to Jimi Hendrix very late at night when his dad would be very drunk, and they would both fall asleep at the kitchen table. Um, and the kids came back with phenomenal lists, great lists. Those are two just tricks, I think, devices to um, alleviate the pressure of of having to write a whole story or a book or you know whatever, and just to get to give somebody permission to be in a more playful state of mind. Very cool. Which is always helpful. Why is I think it results in something with more scenes or mini scenes and less exposition. So it can the writing 
can be more exposition can be deadly and so I think yeah. it gives the writing more power you know you can if if you're writing glimmers and they're you can almost always connect them and the reader is actually quite happy to have you connect things in interesting ways or unusual ways um so yeah well thank you so much a pleasure yeah really fun to talk to you Lighthouse would like to thank the following generous donors that make events like this possible. The Scientific, Cultural, and Facilities District, the National Endowment for the Arts and Artworks, Colorado Creative Industries, Denver Arts and Venues, and many others. For more information about Lighthouse Writers Workshop, please go to lighthousewriters.org.